Hello everyone, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked you're here today. An awesome conversation with two of my friends. Rob Scott, he is an awesome life coach and OG podcaster with an incredible life story. He's been on this podcast before sharing some of that story. And my friend Daniel Kazanjian, he's been on this show probably five times. He is a productivity coach and a philosophical coach out of Toronto. He's a philosopher, friend of Peter Lindbergh's. Um, and today we talk about what I'm going to just coin as the space between stimulus and response. Uh, so much, so many of us have heard that Viktor Frankl quote that came up in this conversation of between stimulus and response is a space and in that space is freedom. And I really do believe that is so true. That's really where our work shows up. That's where our work is. And so we kind of dive into that. Um, both of these men have incredible thoughts and incredible systems that they have built to help people change and uh, change themselves and the space that they change themselves is between stimulus and response. So we kind of get into both of their thoughts on it and it's super rad. As always, if you like this show, please uh, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash in the air for as little as $5 a month. You can help this show out so much. Also, I am opening my philosophical coaching practice again if you'd like to untie existential knots or if you need a spiritual hype man i'm available for you airintheair.com there is a coaching page with a link on it for a free coaching call to see if that fit is just right so without further ado get to uh rob scott daniel kazanjian um, these guys are easy to find on the internet, robscott.com, and then Daniel Kazanjian, you can search for him, and there's links in the description below for his Substack. He also is the host of an amazing podcast called The Metagame. Couldn't recommend it more highly. It's my favorite podcast. Literally, it's my favorite. So here we go, guys. Here we go. Scott and Daniel Kazanjian, welcome back to the podcast. You both have been here before and so stoked to have a little uh, threesome with you. <laughs> awesome. Good to be back, Gary. Okay, so the reason that I've set this up is both of you guys have amazingly profound and unique takes on what it takes to instill change in ourselves. So many of us and most of us hopefully do realize that there is a gap between our actualization as people and our absolute potential. There is a, I mean, I don't know the number, but billion dollar industry of self-help and uh, trying to become more productive, to become more happy, 
fulfilled and actualized. And I think it's a beautiful thing to chase. Um, albeit there are, it's fraught with pitfalls and shame and, uh, as Daniel has pointed out, self-domination. So I think uh, let's start with, I think that I'd love to start with just why we're trying to do this in the first place. And I think that the the why here is really important. And then I'd like to get into the how of what your guys's experiences and the, the, essentially research you've done on best practice to get ourselves to change hopefully for the better and 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 make change that lasts and is um aligned so let's start with with why the hell we're doing this in the first place daniel do you want to go first sure i i can say something that comes to mind so why do we want to change um I think in general, it's because people have intuitions for something more. And I think, Ari, you and I talked about this before, but for instance, you can have an intuition towards beauty, an unrealized beauty that isn't present within your life or your room or your body or something, right? You just see that there's a vision of something more that isn't present now. And that creates a certain amount of tension with what is and what could be. And then you try to try to resolve that tension and there's unwise ways to try to resolve it. And there's wiser ways to do so. But at a high level, I think it's because something within us is oriented towards more. And I'm using that word because it, it's so general and can apply to so many different things. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I agree with all of that. I think, um, the motivator for me is to see what we can do with unnecessary suffering. Mm. I think that I think that there's a lot in our human condition that is sort of patterned to get stuck in ways that uh, really leave us uh, not identified as accurately as we could be as people, and it just leads to dysfunction, uh, internal dysfunction in how we feel, how we express. Uh, and then dysfunction between us and our culture and how we treat others and all that stuff. So uh, my deep motivation is to try to bring, you know, forgive any grandiosity, but like some type of a, a system of wisdom or a step of paths that can help uh, any human have realizations that actually change the way they make meaning, you know, at the heart of it. And that stack of, you know, if we take there is complexity we arise feeling separate from it. Um, and what we have on top of that isness that I like to call that is a way to it, at least seemingly so have some agency of our attention, uh, certainly not full control of that, but some agency of our attention. And then after that agency of attention, we're making meaning and it doesn't seem like we control much of that either. And I think there's ways where we can start to apply, um, wisdom and extra agency to those two dimensions at a very, very base level of human consciousness that allows the stack of what is relevant, what we value, what we care to, you know, fight for or accept. And all those things can lead to a different way that our psychology can occur to us 
that is um, just much more high function. I, I, I heard agency of attention there, and that is uh, of critical import. But you mentioned something that I think I'd like for you both to kind of riff on here, and it's the connection between your identity and your behavior. Start with Rob. Yeah, I mean, at the heart of my work, um, maybe there's two concepts actually. Like, so the you know the business I run is called the Fundamental Shift, and that's you know uh, I can I can take a stab at trying to define that, but it, it'll make more sense later if we let some other concepts come first. And then there's this skill, uh, ability, practice, all those things um, of identity shifting. And so the link between how I would describe how we're identifying in any moment uh, is what drives what we think is real, what we value, and that is what becomes our behavior. Um, a quick aside, not to be overly weird too quickly, but I think we can all track this. I think when we're looking and thinking about behavior, a lot of our language about that is very external. So that has to do with like, how is this thing moving? What is it doing in space and time? But we're also doing things. I would equate our own thinking as like, you could just be sitting and there's a whole lot of doing mentally, right? And there's a whole lot of emoting maybe happening. Uh, and then, so they're way more coupled than we realize. And I would put thinking, feeling, and behaving all in the stack completely related to how we're identifying in the moment. And so they're all sort of meshed and maybe different ways to look at different parts of that, but there's also a, a more complete uh, thing there. And so almost any expression of a self, because I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, some of the, I, I hate claims, right. But some of the ways that I think might be useful ways to talk about this is there's a way to identify even moment to moment, like on this call, we will all identify different ways at different times, right? We'll, we'll change some of our, as we're learning new concepts, right? That's adding to the stack of how I'm identifying about things, et cetera. So there's very minimal shifts in that all the time, but there's also shifts in how I'm identifying. Like if I go to a party and I'm surrounded by all people that I know love me, or it feels really good. And then, you know, an X walks in and I literally identify differently in that moment. It presences other memories. It makes me feel certain ways and my behavior, my feelings, my thinking will all shift because of this external event. Internal events can do that too. And so that stack of identifying in any moment, which is the self you are identified as moment by moment by moment, right? Um, that uh, is valuable to learn in what ways that can be edited, hacked, what parts of that are more real and less real, et cetera. And the other thing that we, we have a continual story that is incredibly useful about us that isn't exactly the same as our moment-by-moment -moment identity, uh, which is often kind of being served up and is a little bit more unconscious, but is the story of our identity, which starts to go into like what home base would be if, uh, if I get a little out of my comfort zone. So that gets tied to psychological persona and who I wish I was and who I want other people to think about me. So... All that is, all that complexity is to say there we're identifying however we're identifying in, you know, a moment by moment thing. And that is shifting and changing. We have a deep sense of self-change blindness about that, backed up by a longer story of who we think we are or would like to be, that is sort of a backdrop like set of patterns that we'll go back into. And that might look like I'm just bad at sales, or 
I'm actually a great athlete or whatever, right? Those kinds of things um, that we would try to continue to make true about ourselves and fight for in a belief sense. Does that, does that resonate for you guys or? Yeah, I love that. I'd love to okay. hear Daniel's thoughts on that. Yeah, something that stood out to me there is this uh, idea of a home base. Because um, one way I think about identity is it's like the often artificial limits that we put on our self when it comes to yeah. um, expression and competence and all the things that might matter to you. It's like you don't realize that you've created these or you've you've been granted these boundaries on all that you could be. And some of that is conscious, but most of it isn't. And some of that is is something that you have some level of authorship over, but a lot of it is also socially negotiated. So something you mentioned, Rob, is that we might show up differently depending on the the scene that we're in, depending on the, the group of people we're interacting with. Um, I, I remember just a personal example. I remember a number of years ago, um, I had this really interesting experience. I, I smoked too much weed one day and then some something about, you know, drugs and altered states of consciousness, they kind of give you um, almost like a control to look at your like normal waking reality against. So it, it's almost like the fish in water doesn't know that it's wet, but it pops out of the water and it understands wetness for the first time. So mm. sometimes um, cannabis, psychedelics, meditation, these things can do this for me. And I remember I had this experience where I stepped outside of my normal waking reality and I noticed that I had this default sense of guilt that had been present with me since as long as I could remember. And that I just assumed every single human being always has, that it wasn't specific to my subjective experience. Meaning prior you had sort of assumed that. And yeah. then this was sort of saying, oh, maybe not. Like the new experience was, oh, maybe, maybe it's not as universal it was as I like, thought. It was almost like if I, the home base thing, like if identity is like uh, your own little Truman show, and you feel this totally coherent, complete reality. And you're like, this is reality. This is just the way it is. And then you have like an altered state like that that pops you out of the Truman Show for a second. Yeah. And you're like, this thing about guilt that you're always feeling, that's just totally contingent. Like it, yeah, that's something <laughs> to do with your childhood. It has, yeah. It's not necessarily real. And I could like step outside of it or almost like that analogy where you take the glasses off and you look at the yeah. lens. I feel like identity is something like that. And it's so, um, it's so subtle at times, but very... Uh, at the same time, very dramatic in terms of the way it dictates your life. Mm. And and so I just wanted to highlight some of that so that it's not fully conscious. Most of it is not fully conscious. And a lot of it is socially negotiated. Um, and, you know, maybe the way your parents interacted with you or your friends or your teachers, et cetera. Um, and then it acts as like a, a limit on, on your expression and, and the way you show up in the world. Yeah. Double yeah. click on socially negotiated for a minute. Yeah, so... It's interesting that, um, that you want to double click on that because this has been on my mind a lot in the last couple of weeks because uh, politically speaking, we're having various forms of identity crises uh, across you know the bipartisan spectrum. Um, and one of the topics that comes up a lot is gender identity. And it seems very difficult for people to pin that down and to talk about it in a, in a simultaneously like intelligent, rational, scalable manner. And also a compassionate manner for people who don't fall into existing gender binaries and things like that. And I often sense that a piece that's missing um, in the discussion on both sides is how your identity is not something that exists in a social vacuum. Like 
this idea of maleness or femaleness, um, it's it's easy to imagine it just exists as some sort of isolated platonic form. Like, you know, you can be a male in like nature without anybody around you. But so much of what we associate with maleness and femaleness is actually something that emerges out of social interactions and it's bestowed upon you by others. And so there's this, right now, culturally speaking, there's a negotiation that's happening or a discussion that's happening about how much of that is up for me to redefine. Like if I decide that today I'm, I'm no longer a male, can I actually do that move? And if not, why not? You know, and that's, that's an interesting question that I think people are afraid to ask because we don't want to, I guess, overstep on other people's self-definition. And I think some of it comes from the individual, but a lot of it comes from this social negotiation. Like you, you kind of define who you are in the context of interactions and relationships with others. I love that. And I think that's really valuable. Um, I have about a thousand things to say and I'm, and I'm, it's, there's so much here. So let me just do like the pointers that I just scribbled down there. So one is social negotiation in a way that I think is a pointer to think about that is that the context that you're in, in any moment, um, has a lot to do with how you will self-identify in any moment. So if that context is a lot of inanimate objects, um, you know, there's not a lot of challenge to how you're identifying and whatever's kind of coming up unconsciously is fine. Uh, if we are dealing with conscious agents, even if that's a dog, you know, that's a more complex thing and it can change and it might have agency and will. Like we're so good at looking for what might have agency. We often assign agency to things that really don't. And we see sort of the ghost of the machine or whatever. So we're hyper looking for that agency because that's changing. That now makes the context much more complex and a concern of how am I being perceived? So some of Greg uh, Henrique's work about uh, justification and that whole impulse to do that and how that's tied to persona, a lot of that has to do with that. So to simplify all that down to a pointer is sort of like what context are you in and mm -hmm. what might you value from that context, et cetera. Um, but Daniel just went much deeper into his specific example of you know some of the trans issues that are coming up now and 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 all that stuff. And that points to, there's so much, you know, we could say about that and what I'm going to share now doesn't hinge on that, but it, it brings up just a point that I want to talk about here, which is <clears throat> meaning and truth are assumption that we have, like what level of access to truth do we have? And then two dimensions of that, which are internal and external, right? So objective fact versus subjective fact and, um, you know, objective reality that conscious agents that we would call sane or whatever that might mean would agree on or feel persistent, et cetera, starts to become things that become very useful to call, you know, objective fact and everything. So, you know, we talk about like, if somebody can change what they are and how they identify as a man or not, it depends on what we mean by man, right? Is that, are we talking about the subjective thing? Are we talking about the more male behaviors? Are we talking about the ability to create semen? Are we talking about, you know, chromosomes, like at what level are we defining this? And some of those are, you know, in a very integral way, some of those are in different quadrants, right? Some are mm -hmm. internal, some are external, some are we space agreements, et cetera. So most people that have no understanding of, let's say integral, or even the different perspectives that their meaning making is popping through all the time, right? If I'm alone, it's easier to, and it doesn't mean I will, but it's easier to be kind of concerned with myself and handling my business and doing whatever. As soon as a conscious agent comes in, especially if that's somebody that I've got history with that's difficult, 
now my persona and how I'm being perceived becomes much more important for me to consider and think about. And that is happening often to us. And something else Daniel pointed out, and I think I was trying to reference it earlier as well, the the amount of agency we have over that can grow, right? We can We can grow into an awareness of seeing some of those impulses and then consciously affecting them and dealing with them. Um, there's some science behind this that I could point to, and I'd be happy to. I don't just want to keep babbling away. But um, one way to think about that is our stimulus and our response is, is not a one-to-one. There's an intermediate multiple stacks if we really get into everything we're trying to process just to live life. But in even one simple example, there's an unconscious bias that will if there's two possible options, we'll weigh it if you can only respond with one thing. Let's say there's two ways you could respond and you have to pick, there will probably be a first preference. And so we'll put that in the unconscious category. Then there's this conscious category up here where if we're told to task a certain way, can you look for this option instead? Most of us can then affect our own bias. So we can consciously affect our bias and we could do that if we were asked to, we could do that if we choose that it's valuable to do that. People aren't aware of how far that can go to create your subjective reality, which then affects how you think, feel, and behave, which is really the only effect we might have on an objective reality in a meaningful way to build a bigger business or be more effective or not be scared of sales calls or whatever that normal human stuff is that we're trying to do, like avoid the Doritos, right? So um, that categorization, that understanding of how we're making meaning and what assumptions we're leaning on and, and how those are being influenced by potential persona issues, et cetera, justifications and all that, which by the way, that doesn't have to be in a context of someone's actually there. I could just be worried, like, what's my mom going to think about me later if I don't study right. for this and become a doctor? Like, so, you know, we're carrying all that around. And so this comes down to like a very, very simple first step. If we go way back to attention and meaning making on top, hmm. and it's just to call out all of the older Eastern traditions which are trying to invite us in a practice to make a way to notice when am I thinking and what is the difference between thought and experience? When am I modeling something about time and myself and doing this, what's really a representation, another sort of error we make is we think we're actually seeing everything, but we're representing it, right? It's a, it's a, it's a re-representation, in fact, if we're conscious of it. So this gets complex, but there's first steps that are very helpful to most people and one of the things that I wish everybody would kind of think about meditation or at least add into the very beginning of it is you're really trying to gain a skill of realizing when am I thinking and I don't have to be attached and sort of believe in that thought. I can come back to this moment, which is outside of time. And all that is, is whatever sensing is going on in this moment. And even my own judgment about this moment is just another thought. And for most people that have never thought about this or dealt with it, that's incredibly complex and doesn't make much sense. But a little mm. bit of sitting on a seat for even a minute a day, you know, can can go, oh, wait. And then you can begin to see that in your daily life. And you can start to go, oh, I just had a thought. And I, because I've practiced it, I know I can detach from that and then have the possibility to maybe make another thought or maybe not think at all and all that kind of stuff. So um, I don't know if those were useful thoughts or if that aligns with what we were saying, but those are what popped up when Daniel was talking. Yeah, I, I, I kind of want to summarize some of the things there um, and and add something to it that actually Daniel Thorson said to me. And maybe I'll start with that. I, I remember uh, Daniel said that the reason why he's drawn to meditation so much and joined the monastic academy and all that is because 
it's fundamentally a, like a deconstructive practice. And it, it basically un, it erases or gives you the, the chance to erase some of these scripts and ideas and associations that you previously assumed, like the guilt example I gave, were just part of reality. Yeah. And then that creates space for something new to be defined. And it's almost um, to kind of connect everything together. It sounds like what you're saying, Rob, is that these thoughts that people are having unconsciously or habitually, let's say, just the same kind of thoughts on a regular basis, the tendency is for people to assume that that's who they are. Yeah. Like It's almost like your identity is in part the culmination, the sum, the sum of all these thoughts. You know, if, if I were to like somehow have the, you know, like the law room transcript of everything that was going on in Aries' head throughout the day, yeah. And I started to like I graphed it and categorized each of those thoughts based on certain themes and certain tendencies and certain things like that. Then you start yeah. to get a sense of someone's identity, and those thoughts can change depending on context, which we mentioned before. But what's more interesting is the closer you pay attention to them, the more we realize that they're just, they're not, they're not even you. Yeah. They're, they're just appearing in, in consciousness. They're appearing in this field of, of awareness and you can identify with that field as yeah. opposed to the thoughts themselves. And that kind of creates a sense of agency for redefining your identity. I, I like so good. Mwah, chef's kiss, like amazing, right? Really good. Um, it, it, I just want to do a quick aside and then I want to talk about John Verveke and categorization and identity in that way. Okay. For one second, but, um, the, I almost want to start with the Verveke stuff. So, cause that's, that's deep enough. When I was just talking about inside and outside, one of the, one, another way to think, and, and I really want to highlight, um, what Daniel just said about the, that stack of sort of thoughts that are coming up or what I might call lenses, right. That are, positions or opinions or knowings or assuredness of meaning, right, that come up. Um, the part of that that we normally think of as our identity is the part of that that feels internal to us in the moment. And that is what creates the agency against what is not internal to us. And one of the best ways to show that our self isn't one standard thing is to point out in just simple examples how that self can get way big, and in a spiritual sense, all the way out to the entire universe, and way small all the way down to literally nothing, like no self-identity at all. And how those are both old Eastern kind of things that people have talked about. And they're they're actually the same thing, just if we can think about the meaning in a different way. It's like it's like the way to get to the same place. But are we identifying as everything or are we identifying as nothing, which would really just mm -hmm. be no separate self within the everything, right? Because the everything doesn't seem to turn off, right? Unless we're uh, uh, unconscious or dead. So you know, as we're living Even in this, then, there's correct. Right, right, right. So, and I have, I have thoughts about that, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep our, you know, we'll keep our white belts on for now. Um, but so like, what is identity? It, John Verveke has a, has a beautiful little teaching. It's probably in his meaning series or something. And if anybody cares, I could, I could go find it and point to it, but um, I could also probably just tell it to you wrote, right. He, he actually compares, I think it's a bison and, and a, and a lawnmower. And the question is like, how similar are these two items? And what we would normally say is like not very similar. One's potentially alive, one's organic, one's metal, you know, whatever. But in logic, they're infinitely similar. They're made of atoms, right? They both are found on earth. Like I could keep going with my meaning making about them to list 
you know, similarities like, you know, near infinite, right? Just uh, there could, we could keep going in how similar they are. So it's not about a, the similarity that's interesting there. Uh, what is interesting is the relevant similarity. And that takes a perspective or a certain lensing in the comparison to how I'm making meaning about something. Mm. And so why that matters is uh, he goes on to make another example that I'll bring up in a second, but it's to think about what categories are, which have so much to do with our thinking, because we're coarse graining everything and we're trying to chunk down assuredness of, of meanings so that we can function in the world, right? That's what's going on. And so we're going, you know, good or bad, dangerous or safe. I'm attracted to it or I, I'm repelled. You know, what's my nuance here? What do I think that conversation meant and how should I respond? Right. We're trying all of those are to make assuredness of meanings, none of which are necessarily accurate or true, but they're my best guess in the moment with the course graining that I'm doing. Each of those little judgments, if we go back to stimulus and response, each one of those is trying to make meaning out of or categorize different things because a category is partial identity. That what the category is, is how are these things similar so that I can group them and think about them in a certain way. So if I say, uh, if my meaning base is bison and lawnmower, my default impulse, remember I said we have those unconscious impulses, would be not similar. But if I want to consciously go, well, wait, are they similar? Can I put a category on them? That's the infinite creativity that I could add to that to go, sure, they're both made of atoms or, hey, they weigh about the same thing. They could both kill you, whatever those are. And each of those can become truth categories, which identifies these things in their similarity. So that categorization is really important. So to, to take all that weirdness and go back to that stack of what I often call lensing or what he was talking about as, as thinking, right, Daniel, you were talking about as thinking, it's when all of that is categorized together to make a me that is the agent, right? And here's how easy it is to shift that. If I'm present, I'm one way. If I presence an old violent thing I went through, and that's what I'm modeling on top of my context, I'm different. I might be violent. I might be scared. I might run. If I'm not, I might be funny and open and whatever, right? That changes me in a way that anybody who wants to talk about change and it's not a path that doesn't have to be a path. The habit of it, changing that longer story of yourself might have some type of path, but time itself subjectively is really a modeling function more than it is anything. We've never been to the past. We've never been to the future. So these things are what the self ends up doing in the, I will be different later thing is actually not changing now, but kind of believing that if they learn something, maybe one day they'll get there. And so one of the other big delusions that humans are caught in is I'm not there yet, right? Mm -hmm. That's that desire. That's that impulse of like, what do I need to do? What should I value? And if we are only humans, that's incredibly useful, right? We've gotten very good at the course graining, judging, being able to communicate and think and do all this stuff. And that, that unconscious function that gives me a self that is not the whole me, and I'm, I'm happy to take that all the way out and make it go down. I have very quick examples for that that should make that make more sense. Um, but the fact that some unconscious version of that keeps coming up and the fact that I, without learning how, have some script of who I think I am and who I'd like to be and that little stack that we could get into Freud on that, you know, that's incredibly useful. That lets me be an agent that might kill food and survive and procreate and become what we've built with this culture, right? But we don't even have to value this culture. Right. We could we could make different choices about that. 
And you might notice as soon as we get overly attached to this culture or what we think this culture should be, we end up in political arguments. We have all this complexity where we no longer cooperate in the same way. And at that bigger level outside an individual self, things start to break down or can break down very quickly. So if we're not even aware that this is happening or have the capability to be conscious that this is at play, not even good at changing it yet, but just kind of know that it's at play, we lose all these options of that middle stack of both how we're unconsciously identifying and our conscious ability to affect that biasing that is our sense of self. Is that is that tied together for you guys in some way? Yeah, what, what I'm hearing there is... Um... I, I, I kind of bring it back to that example that I had where unless you like experience what it's like to take the glasses off, mm -hmm. there's so much potential that you're leaving on the table. And what I like to, to ask is like, okay, it's cool if you can take psychedelics or if you can, you know, meditate or have these peak experiences or something like that. But how can people get a taste of it if those options aren't available to them or they have skepticism or, or something like that because I, what you presented, Rob, the, the model like that, that makes sense to me. But I, I also think it's a bit of a, it's like, um, it's intellectually demanding for a lot of people, especially someone who's skeptical to just take, take those propositions and then make them into something real for them. And I imagine yeah. all sorts of, uh, practical procedures and techniques yeah. Yeah. That, that do that. So that's what I'm curious about. For sure. So, you know, let's do the one that's like publicly available. We'll go back to meditation and what that's actually doing in that moment. What's normally happening for people is they are in thought and they don't even know they're in thought, right? They are making a meaning about something. And because it's effective as a human to survive, right, to get to survival, really effective to not have to do any of this conscious load and everything that Daniel's sort of referencing and just sort of go, yeah, this is what I think it is. And we have all these unconscious systems that are very good at helping us stay alive and procreate. And um, and those are being exploited, right? A lot of what Daniel Schmachtenberger talks about and, and others about how hyperstimulus is now, you know, corporations are just using that to sort of play on those impulses that worked for us for so long to keep us alive and do these things. Those are being exploited. Um, so in any case, if if all we're doing is the unconscious game, we're not going to be able to manage the complexity and the power that we have today very well. Okay. So now we're at a place where we're going, how editable is that unconscious impulse to survive and to be selfish in a healthy way and, and do all that stuff. So this is when we have to begin to maybe sit and meditate or it's one path. It's one way to just begin. And when we do that, if we can meaningfully go, okay, I'm going to, and just let's make breath the focus. Cause that might be the, you know, what most people are familiar with. We are moving our conscious attention, which at first we're not even noticing that we have agency over, right? I could imagine an adult who's just like, what do you mean my attention, right? Like, because their attention's normally just being pulled unconsciously by other impulses and impulses inside them that they're not aware of. So the, the, the fact of just sitting down is an invitation to go, I'm going to play with my awareness, period. And I'm going to see if it's, is it difficult? Because if you ask somebody who's never meditated, be like, sit down for 10 minutes and just focus on your breath. Like, sure. And then they try and two breaths in, they're like, I, what do you, I can't, why can't I do this? They don't see how impulsive thought is, right? So that's that unconscious layer, just serving up old patterns going, don't forget to do the laundry. Don't forget, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? So that initial wrestling match is the very first thing 
if we know that's why we're doing it, that's why I want to sort of explain this is one of the biggest functions of meditation is just to notice, oh, okay, I am, there's this automatic impulse to make meaning or keep modeling, which I just call thought. How much agency do I have to notice that that's happening and not fully believe in it, right? Not fully be captured by the lens of whatever that thought is. So those thoughts can be everything from what I want to what I think I have to change about myself to what I'm shameful of to all of them, right? Just, you know, near infinite again, right? It's all the ways we can think. So if I don't even know that's happening, we're sort of captured by thought. And we're going to be moved by the basic impulses that back that up with our culture and what we believe in all those things. I can see that, whoa, there's some agency to come back meaningfully just by decision to take this conscious portion of my attention that I have some agency over. And I can strengthen that agency to go, wait, I can come back into this moment and what is happening without any judgment about it and just be in the experience of a breath instead, right? Which is not the same as modeling or thinking about the breath. As what people notice and get frustrated with in meditation very quickly is, they'll do that and they'll think they're succeeding only to find they're now judging the breath and how well am I doing? And then they realize that. And instead of dropping that new thought, they have judgments about how they're failing at meditation, et cetera. Right? So the, the spin of thoughts just begins again. I would say that we're invited to just, that's kind of the standard human condition today. So without even getting into like what I've tried to innovate and develop, which I'm happy to share more about, but that first play of attention has massive effects if we can understand what that means. Most people, I don't think if you go to a monastery and just begin sitting, it might take you 10 years to have the realization that that's kind of what's going on. You still may get incredible benefit out of learning to sit and calm yourself and all that. But a lot of those people end up feeling as though, gosh, life is getting complex again. I got to get back to the seat. They're not capable of bringing that attentional change into the world, which is actually what, what I call stillness in motion. So if we can practice stillness using that conscious attention to watch our biasing and see how much we can remove that biasing, now we gain some level of skill. Very early, you want to be checking in with that in your daily life to say, wow, I'm walking down the hall. Can I just feel my feet for three steps and then do that? Wow, I'm in this conversation. Can I really just listen and hear the sounds and maybe notice how I'm thinking about it or maybe really try to not think about it for a second and just listen? And, and know that I'll have thoughts in a moment when it's appropriate. I'm just going to try and take it in. All that play is bringing that stillness into our daily life while we're moving around because you don't have to be doing that intentionally this. It just happens to be easier if you remove the stimulus of vision and if you remove the stimulus of motion and change of context by making the room okay. What we're doing today, just as a quick aside, and this can also be really helpful, but to make this easier because we like easy, we're listening to guided audios or we're doing this or we're calling that meditation, but that's really just an invitation to be in somebody else's guided, you know, thinking or, or modeling uh, like a TV show captures us and, and sort of handles the modeling for a little while or, or inputs the modeling. So that's, that's one thing that can be deeply profound if people see how much that gives them freedom and then allows them when an impulse comes up, like if you were, and this can happen very quickly, like, you know, in a couple of days, in some cases, certainly weeks, absolutely months, whatever, you can have this realization of like, oh, shoot, everything I think about my mom, where I'm just like, it's such a difficult relationship. That's me thinking it doesn't mean the reality of whatever happened isn't there. But I don't have to presence that with my thinking and add that to my stack of context when I'm around my mom, I can come back to, 
loving her, accepting her, like, you know, this leads to forgiveness, all these other things. But usually just practicing alone, it's, you also need to sort of go like apply that, that portion of the skill of it, of really sort of breaking up with thought itself and experience and getting a little bit cleaner about what those two domains of our experience can be. Does that resonate for you guys? Yeah, this is, it, it's awesome. And, and I want to hear a quick reflection from Daniel, because I know that brought up a lot for you, but I, I want to pivot slightly to something that I think is going to tie things together, but go ahead, Daniel. Yeah, just um, to also connect some dots here, you mentioned stimulus and response a couple of times, and I, I don't know if you were doing this on purpose, but to me, what came to mind was that Viktor Frankl quote between the stimulus and response is a space, mm -hmm. and in that space lies our freedom, something like that. Yeah. Um, I've also, I, I did a bastardization of that quote once I tweeted uh, between the stimulus and response is a space, and in that space is Mark Zuckerberg. And the, the relevance <laughs> of this is that when you're meditating, you're you're actually creating a little bit more of that space and that mm. increases your capacity to choose. It increases your capacity to um, not identify with a thought or like, let's say you got triggered by your wife because she does this nagging thing that always yeah. like, gets you angry, but then you have a little bit of stillness, a little bit of space. You feel the trigger. You notice yourself getting your heart rate going up, but you don't, you don't initiate the response because yeah. you've meditated, you've created some space there. So that that's how I'd kind of uh, connect with what you just said. But I mentioned the Mark Zuckerberg piece because even like, let's say someone's listening to this podcast, um, they're, they're getting thoughts from other people just into their brain. Um, and sometimes that's a great thing to do, but I'll notice that if I, and I, I love information, like I'm, I love learning. So I'll listen to audiobooks and podcasts all the time. But if I'll, if I'm constantly doing that and if I'm like on Twitter and on Facebook and oh all this stuff, yeah. I'm getting all these new inputs. Yeah. It's basically like whenever there's a moment of space, some, something else is filling it. And what happens is my mind doesn't wander enough. And I almost like, it's almost like you're, you're getting, it's like when you subscribe to so many newsletters in your email inbox and you just don't read any of them. And every morning you got like 20 new emails that you feel guilty about archiving because they're all these good like sub stacks that you're never going to read or something like that. It's like, we're doing that with our lives all the time. And that's the, the Mark Zuckerberg reference. It's like, you're filling the inbox of your consciousness with so many different thoughts and open loops and inputs and intentions and Oh, maybe I should do this instead, or maybe I should act on like the wisdom from, you know, this one podcast I listened to, but I have six other things that I'm still working on right now. And so basically what I mean to say is everything you described is on hard mode in, in contemporary life. Like I think our generation, we should kind of give ourselves a bit of uh, patience because this is a new thing. Like the last 10, 15 years have been a big experiment yeah. where people, people are being overloaded with so much more than their brains are used to dealing with. And that's why I think meditation is very important, but that's why it's also extra hard. Totally. And, and that's great. Can I, Ari, Ari, I know you want to move, but can I respond to that real quick yeah, and just say a couple of things? So one uh, is just to really notice that that social media, each one of those is just a new stimulus. So there is no gap in the stimulus. Like you're not, you're not, you know, um, Later, you can deal with stimulus and not have the same response, but that's after you've become more wise in a sense. Prior to that, the stimulus feels like it needs more stimulus. And that is what these attention companies, right, that, that monetize our attention are exploiting, where these guys might exploit drugs or these guys might exploit sugar, these hyper stimulus. They're, you know, now we're down to 
15 second videos or whatever, just um, auto, like they play as soon as you turn them on. So you become captured and there's just another stimulus, another stimulus, another stimulus. That's why it is a, a big ask to go sit in a room and be quiet for a minute and why that would be so incredibly uncomfortable at first because our, you know, chemically, we're just waiting, like what's the next dopamine hit? Like what's going on? What's the next thing to learn, et cetera. And so, it, and because it may take a moment for that to feel valuable, it's hard to value it, right? It's hard to, it's hard to prioritize it and say, this is important to do, or we might believe in it. And again, we're in a system where one day I'll get there. So I go, well, tomorrow I'll start meditating. Like I know I, I do value it guys. I do value it, but I don't actually value it. So it's an espoused value, but not a really expressed value in, in a way. So that's why like making it really short and making it very clear about, can you even notice these two realms is like the very beginning of that. And, um, and is one way to, to make that a little bit more helpful. The other thing just about the between stimulus and response that, that part, uh, Daniel Kahneman also has this great example. And if I'm getting it wrong, I think it's from his thinking fast and slow. Um, I think he describes like an enlightened person and a drunk person having a meal, let's say, and there's, let's say there's somebody else in the room that's notable, like maybe a, a homeless person that smells of urine or something. Uh, the drunk person, that stimulus creates a response, right? There is no gap between smelling that and going like, oh, you stink and cut it out. And can we get this guy out of here? Like whatever, you know, a drunk person might do in that situation. The stimulus is let's make it identical for the enlightened person, theoretically, but they have the, the, I don't have to behave immediately, right? That I don't have to do anything external. Uh, I think before I talked about behavior, maybe being even thought itself, but the act, like the way the enlightened person may be behaving is just noticing the impulses that are coming up and not having to take that all the way to yelling or doing whatever. And then you have agency. That enlightened person still may choose to yell or punch or do whatever. They don't have to, it's not impulse, it's not unconscious. They've grown the ability to have, which can become more unconscious, meaning it's more available on default and awareness of what is happening unconsciously for us. So if that's confusing, I'm happy to try and say that differently. But um, if all we think is that consciousness is effort and that's all that happens, um, yes, they have more space to apply that effort, but the ability to have more of what's happening unconsciously occur to them and feel it and know it because they now can, they now see their thoughts come up and they've now made that more automatic to be aware of that. And they don't get captured by it in the same way. There's been like a decoupling of the truth of their thinking. That's really important. So this goes down to meaning making assuredness of meaning and what we think of as true and our automatic response to that truth, right? So it doesn't mean there's not an automatic response in the enlightened person. It just isn't as tightly coupled to the immediate thought impulse that comes in. And that's what meditation and other things, it's, it doesn't have to be meditation, but there are other ways to do this as well. But that's one of the things that is being afforded if we can start to decouple thought and experience. Yeah. So a thought doesn't have to trigger me and a feeling in my body doesn't have to trigger me. And that's what can grow that gap between stimulus and response that Daniel was pointing to. Yeah. I think, you know, to, to, to provide almost a different avenue to arrive somewhere hypothetically similar I kind of came to it through nonviolent communication and then just by 
going through a lot of different communication-oriented um, philosophy, I have started to do it myself and recommend to others that you start flexing the muscle or building the habit and capacity to be able to differentiate between your thoughts, your feelings, your needs, and your requests. And inside of your thoughts, you should be able to differentiate between your, just like the arising thoughts that are judgments or that are commentary, that are justification, all of these different, um, almost like, it's almost like a categorization. If you just kind of learn to listen to the things as if they have a certain category that they could be put into, you start to gain that perspective that, oh, I'm actually just having a judgment. Like that's just a judgment of you. That's just a, ju that's just a thought of, of what you are. And maybe I'm not actually seeing that totally clearly. And with that, to be able to do it is almost a certain self-compassion. You know, as Daniel said that in the 2022, we're, we're trying all of this spaciousness between stimulus and response on super hard mode that Mark Zuckerberg has the world's fastest supercomputers pointed at our fucking brains, trying to keep us doing what they think we should. Um, I totally agree but, with that. But you, you have to look for that to matter, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, Mark Zuckerberg is only pointing at my head when I'm logged into Facebook. Well, I, I mean, yeah, Facebook. I mean, I think that the, the, the Zuckerberg is, is he's just a, I think Daniel's just using him as a. No, I mean, and a, I am too. That's what I mean. I'm just saying that like, there's, there's agency even before trying to see our thought, by the way, what you just pointed out, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry I did. Um, but can I just uh, sort of that, what you're talking about, that self-compassionate absolutely can be that, but even maybe prior to that, whether it's compassionate or not, it's a level of self-awareness where you're literally willing to look at your own meaning making in the moment. You're going, oh, I'm just doing a judgment. That's a level of yeah. wisdom yeah. that is the difference. And I, I use the example of like, imagine a Jersey Shore character and this isn't, there's nothing real here that I'm saying, but we could just imagine them being maybe more impulsive, right? They're at the bar, they're drinking. I'm talking about a character. Maybe this is too old a reference and I need to get something new or whatever. But like that person is probably not looking at themselves very often. And so when they're at the bar talking to their friend and what's so dramatic and what's so interesting for us to watch is they're blaming everybody. That's Tony's fault and that's Mary's fault. And that's, you know, and they're never even turning the light inside. And so one of the ways, and you know, Ari, you and I might've said this before to each other, but you know, even the move to be at the bar and make all those claims, but then say to a friend, but you know what, I'm kind of, I might be here. I'm not sure how, but like, can you help me kind of see myself? That's a level up in consciousness, right? Yeah, That's a level where now I'm not just, and we see this change in children, right? Children yeah. can, and right. And, <clears throat> and my point, my point was that there's a, it's almost, this is the rhetorical path to getting to that jump in awareness that, that you might have afforded through meditation, but this is, might be, totally. If, if you're really interested in verbal communication with people, even debate or even discussing 
uh, deep ideas. It's almost just like a the entry level humility that you have to have to admit that you're a human who has all these thoughts arise, that has all these triggers that are likely to get poked, that has all of this conditioning, these lenses, these pat, the, you know, your whole past is like just like clouding you, and to have just a bit of humility to admit that. Uh, I, I think you're exactly right that that the that the shift in awareness has to come before you can have that self-compassion for yourself. You have oh. to you have to first admit, okay, I, that was a thought. And the fact that I am lost in thought, I can actually have compassion for myself that I'm lost in thought because being lost in thought is confusing and and difficult and and yeah. and, and and troublesome for all kinds of different ways. And so to have that recognition that 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 spaciousness between stimulus and response affords self-compassion. I love that. Yeah. That that, that order of operations is really I do important. too. That's that's neat. Yeah. Um the thing that I really want to pivot to that I think Daniel has a really unique and beautiful perspective on it. I know we're coming to the end of our time here, but I really want Rob to hear this and uh, because it's been helpful for me. And I think that Daniel has a, a, a really polished version of. Daniel has written about self-discipline being self-domination. Mm. And yeah, that's great. I would love to uh, to kind of hear this from Daniel and, and hear your reflection on it, Rob. Yeah, yeah cool. It, it's funny. I made a, a TikTok about this recently and it, it went kind of viral. So people seem to really like this reframe of self-discipline. And what I mean by it is that self-discipline, as most people understand it, is the process by which you take one part of yourself that you happen to be identifying with in the moment and privilege his or her perspectives and values at the expense of the others. So it's like this, this version of me is now the king. All you other fuckers have to get in line and you know, we're going to, we're going to wake up and meditate for an hour every single day from now on. Cause we're listening to Rob, Daniel and Ari talk about how important it is. So we're just going to do it even though we've never done it before. There's like, you get these moments where you feel the motivation or, you know, you, you someone inspires you to, to do something like that. And, what tends to happen almost every time is because you're a complex multi-parted system that contains contradictory multitudes at some point there's a there's a coup you know like the, the <laughs> other parts of you rise up and they they kill the king you know yeah. or they they murder Gaddafi or something so what happens is people live li their lives in pendulum swings and I, I see this all the time with pe people I work with but also any human being like someone, uh, dieting is a great example. Someone might feel bad about, let's say their weight or something like that. And so they're like, I know I'm going to do, uh, intermittent fasting or something. They're just going to go to something like extreme and they do it for two weeks. And the next thing you know, they're binging on oh, the third week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's not to say that self-discipline in that sense or willpower, some people could use willpower mm. here. It's not to say that it's, uh, it's always a bad thing. It's just a bad strategy in the long term. Sometimes you need to do that. You need to dominate yourself. Sometimes um, you need strong hierarchy. You need someone to come in and be like, all right, you have to listen to me because I'm the one who actually knows how to get us out of this mess. Yeah. And occasionally you're in an emergency and that's necessary. Like a, like if a parent is trying to rescue their kid, they're not going to have a negotiation. They're just going to rescue the kid, right? Sometimes yeah. you need that. But for your personal long-term development, it, it just creates so much uh, internal antagonism and 
what's a better approach is is looking for a sense of alignment so this is the, mm. the, the second piece of it which is um if if let's say the three of us were involved in some sort of project and i got very domineering and i said this is how we're going to do it and i didn't ask for your input at some point you might not want to keep working with me and so what do we do when we work with others we try to negotiate alignment i try to find out what's important for area what's important for rob how do we get a piece of the puzzle that everyone's into and how do we make this thing that we're working on and you can do the same with yourself and just like how working well with others requires giving them space to express their needs and actually showing them love and treating them with respect the same applies for yourself mm. so this is where i think the self love comes in and if you know we're talking about self compassion if if you take a self compassion approach as opposed to a self discipline approach you'll realize that the lazy part of you actually has some wisdom there's some sort of need there that it's trying to actualize but maybe it's not sophisticated in the way it expresses it and so you know you start eating refined carbs or something when really like you just your blood sugar was low and there's actually a better way you could have fixed that problem like you'll notice that all these different parts of you have a piece of the puzzle and then you become a more integrated or perhaps individuated person beautiful I love, I mean, I love that. I think it's amazing. Um, you know, and I have, I have, a, I have a lot of thoughts about it. I mean, there's, there's so much that's great there, but that's, that's a really beautiful system. Um, in no way to be, you know, uh, confrontational or antagonistic, but like to sort of just parse out more language. Cause that's such a short description of something that I'm sure mm -hmm. is way more complex, et cetera. Um, I love it. And I think there's a lot of truth to the different parts sort of being a concert and, and, you know, uh, potentially with, uh, sort of a controller unit that is allowing that concert to be is a way healthier, uh, way to be. And sometimes lazy is really based on old, you know, shadow stuff or mess or whatever that needs actually more attention to clean up, to really get healed and get past because so much of this is unconscious. Um, so a lot of the, like if we're going to be self-aware enough to realize we're in an identity where we're like, I'm now committed to this goal. This is really important to me. Most people aren't even aware that that's a different part of themselves. Right. So they, they, that just feels like who they are in that moment. And then later when they're not identified consciously as anything but starving and what's there is the, you know, popcorn and junk and they're eating that. And then they come back to kind of judge themselves. Now there's all this self-shame and everything that you're talking about but they're not they're not even self-aware enough to notice how that self is shifting and what's going on because they've got that self-change blindness they're just going i thought i was that thing and clearly i'm not because now i'm eating and that's enough proof for them to have a more persistent story of i'm a failure and i lie to myself and i'm all these things which is i think what you're talking about is is the problem when we get more domineering and so the fix to that is more control and more whatever and I, your point is great that without that self-compassion, that's got its problems as well, right? So one of the ways that I want to come back to this um, and absolutely honor what Daniel's talking about, like that's a really brilliant system, but it also requires that difference between being deeply unconscious about us self at all and just sort of having self be my thing that's unconscious and I'm behaving on top of it, right? and think I'm in some type of control, but don't see my own impulses and don't see what's holding me back and what my limits are, to developing an ability to be able to objectify the self, okay, in some meaningful way, however it's showing up, 
And then it becomes really useful to put different categories on that and do some of what Daniel's talking about. But if I don't even have the ability to see a self, I can't even begin that conversation in a sense. Um, yeah. So and, you're saying that you're you're saying that when Daniel talks about the community that lives inside of all of us that has different voices and different needs, without first the awareness that there is a community, that there are different parts of us that are our shifting identity from moment to moment, then we won't have the space. There there won't be any space. Like that's an operating system that can't run that program yet. You know what I mean? It doesn't uh -huh. even it doesn't even know enough about itself. And I'll go further. And um, I'm not saying this is what Daniel means at all, but like if we think about this, those parts of ourself are, they might be deeper patterns and sort of come back in some cyclical way, but the way we can be identifying in any moment, again, is near infinite, right? Those would still be just categorizations of a way that we're sort of feeling in a sort certain way. And so today I'm feeling a little more domineering, but it might not even be the whole day. That just happened a minute ago and that's how I'm identifying now. So I start to feel, I guess today's a domineering day. And the only reason I'm saying that's today is because I remember yesterday and my one little memory about yesterday is I felt really meek and weak, or I remember eating the stuff and I wasn't disciplined last night. So we're doing these quick coarse grainings, even on the judgment of what we are. And my point is, is to say, hey, how is that identity even being created at all? And is there a way to not identify as a self? And I'm suggesting that if you're just in breath and, you know, I, I, I don't leave and lean on meditation that heavily in, in my work, but it's the, it's the sort of example that we've given. If you're just in sensation to the most degree that you can be, um, I would argue that in that moment, you're not agentic. You're not trying to accomplish or do if, if it's the way that I'm describing, you're not in the past, you're not presenting the past or fantasizing about the future. All those things are what the self are, right? So the, so the self is all of your memories. It is all of your goals. It's the stack of all that meaning making and positioning that creates the agent that you're identifying as in any moment. And to Daniel's point, that has patterns, right? Oh, I've been meek my whole life. All I need to do is foster this discipline that David Goggins has been talking about forever, and that'll change me. But it'll only change me if you can stay identified like that and apply it over time. Mm -hmm. And and that is one level of change. That's where willpower is effective, right? Like if I can do something with my will long enough, chances are my unconscious patterns will change. That will be normalized to me, and I can self-identify more easily. In my example, you know that I use is like to become a runner or whatever. That can be accomplished through willpower because I'm repatterning what my unconscious can easily serve up as a belief about myself. And some of the patterns I think that Daniel's talking about is contextually in times of the day and other ways, those other selves show up unconsciously. And so learning to find ourselves in a different one and be loving about that is absolutely useful. Like that's really important. I would take that further just to say identifying as any self in any minute, whether it's follows a pattern or not, is useful. And to also realize, oh, when I'm eating the chips, I might have been completely unconscious. And what I really, what's the most useful thing to do right now, again, is to love myself, or it might be to get disciplined right now, or it might be to whatever. All of those could fit the situation. The situation is going to depend on how am I identifying and what am I valuing right now, right? And that could be if the story of me is I'm supposed to accomplish this thing over time, the most useful thing might be to come back to, gosh, I got to prioritize that. 
And this is where we start to gain the ability to do the hard thing in the moment. And, and this is where discipline has its power also, let's say. Um, discipline, uh, one way to talk about that might be that it's the ability to do something hard in the moment to delay gratification to a bigger idea about myself later, right? It's not the only thing it is, but that might be one description of it. And one of the kryptonites to that is, I want the cake right now, you know? I, it's not as fast getting the abs, so I'm going to eat the cake, and then I eat the cake again, and then I'm not disciplined, and I'm not disciplined, and all this self-shame just starts to sort of arise from that. If in the moment I realize my only agency right now is to identify with some conscious intention or accept what is in whatever's happening unconsciously, now I can just make a new decision now and decide, do I value this cake or do I value the abs now again? And to Daniel's point, without any self-shame about it, whatever, because whatever's happened has happened. So that function of being able to see the self, which at the very beginning is just even having the capacity to ask a friend, like, I might be involved. What's going on here? Like, here's what I think happened. That self-awareness is the baby step first thing that allows us to begin to see, oh, wow, I believe certain things about myself because of my memories about what's happened. And maybe those were even useful at the time, but they may not be useful now. Both of those are thoughts. A memory is a kind of thought. I can either believe in that and take it as impulse and sort of identify with it, make it internal to me. It is me, right? Or I can go, no, that's just a thought. That move of what we're doing on the seat in meditation is going, I'm not identified with the thought that arises. I'm objectifying the thought and making it external to me. It's a, it's a, it's a thing I could follow or I could, I now have agency over that thought. And that stack of thoughts altogether is what makes up the self that I'm identified in the moment. And the persistence of those are the personalities or ways that we could kind of come up. So I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, it's, uh, I think I'm just trying to show that there's a necessity to sort of be aware of the self to even begin naming those things. And then once we can do that, absolutely self-love and a concert of those is more of an accepting of all the ways you can be and you know, shaping that over time as a human is, you know, an option for us and it's important and it's wonderful, but also it's great to realize I'm not only my psychological self, I'm also a being that has uh, joy and presence and other things. Well, let me add something kind of simple to that. Um, perhaps there is a, a certain amount of self-awareness that's needed in order to uh, see yourself as a symphony of different parts. But I actually think in practice, it's, it's even simpler than getting people to, you know, meditate and notice that their thoughts are not who they are and like the, the stuff that you described that everybody should do. It's just what I've noticed is in practice, if people haven't tasted what you're talking about, it's kind of hard to get them to start or to sell them on it. It's like, totally. like you're going to yeah. sit down and be shit at meditation and feel like you don't know what you're doing for like many, many days. And then maybe at some point in the future, you'll notice you have more stillness more space between the stimulus and response so you can do all these cool things that we're talking about. And what I recommend to people with this whole idea of this, the self being, you know, containing multitudes is it's super simple. It's just next time you have an intention, you know, like to go to the gym or something, just get consent from the different parts of you that don't want to go to the gym. Yeah. And, and you don't need much self-awareness to do that. It's, you just realize that, yeah, part of going to the gym is shitty. You know, like, I don't like, I don't like the gym. I don't like the change room. I don't like totally. the guy who like doesn't clean up after himself on the, the weight rack or whatever. And you just kind of like give yourself permission 
to feel the resistance to the thing that you want to do and and then you know get consent from that part and be like look are you cool if like we do this for like a week or how about like i only go to the gym for 15 minutes for week one are you cool with that and you can have this negotiation and i don't think it requires that much self-awareness so you can coach somebody through this like who's never meditated before as long as they're willing to play along with this idea that that there's actually different parts of themselves that are in conflict yeah. and i think most people immediately get that i'm i'm with you i think i i think there's tons of use to that without question um my my playful back to how you're talking about meditation um how we frame things sort of you know mm -hmm. leads to what we're looking for so I, I wouldn't, and I know you were sort of joking, but, and, and maybe not, but like, you know, meditation is going to suck. You might find something way later, whatever. I think it's also, we could come to that going, can you sit and can you notice the difference between thought and breath? That's a huge win. You win today. Can you do that again tomorrow in 10 seconds? Right. It's not because I think we believe something about meditation that it's supposed to lead right. to bliss and wisdom and enlightenment. And that's not, I mean, Maybe later, that's what I'm talking about. But that's, I'm not even setting that up as a goal. But I'm just I, going. I think most people yeah. will think that even if you say, hey, it's a win that you notice a difference between your breath and your thought. If they don't know how to apply that win, they're, they're like, okay, totally. cool. Like, 100%. what does that even yep. mean? Yep. And so I think it's kind of hard. It's a hard sell. And it's just, I know from, from practice and from experience, yeah. it's a, it, basically people like we're preaching to the choir, people who've experienced this stuff know what you're talking about. Um, but in my experience, a lot of people who have no idea what this even is, like, what is it even, why are these guys even talking about like difference between thought and identity? Like, what does that mean? Yeah. It's like really hard to get someone to experience it, uh, right away. And so there's a bit of faith that they need to give to the practice and that, that presents a bit of a challenge. Um, yeah. it's almost what I hear with that, with just like the, it's almost like a conversational rhetorical thing that, okay, like the gym sucks, but I want, I want to do this. So like, let me get your consent, the rest of me. And it's almost like in that moment, before you have the practice of really separating those things, it's almost like you're practicing doing it with oneself first, like a single self before you really divide it up and really get sensitive to all the nuance of all of the different voices. You're just starting with, okay, just use your intellectual mind and just make the case for going to the gym. Now use your same intellectual mind, the, the same hypothetical self, and just make the case for not going to the gym. And then square that circle and shake fucking hands. Make a deal. Make a deal with your psyche, even if it's from one self to the same self. Before we, before we can even um, get to there's myriad selves in there and there's myriad identities and there's a difference between thought and identity and the thought and feeling and all of these, you know, all of the nuance that, that, that grows and blooms as you deepen this practice. The first thing might just be as simple as use your same self to make the case both ways and then shake your left hand on your right hand and, and, and go. Yeah, I guess what I'm hearing there is you don't need somebody to accept the idea that they contain multitudes if they don't vibe with that. And the truth is, like, these are just words, right? This yeah. idea of, like, having multiple selves, it's just a model. It's just yeah. it's kind of like, you know, uh, IFS, internal family systems. Like, if you think of, of like, a family of, of people, right? Or even this idea of a symphony. Th these are analogies that they're not 
like the actual base level truth of the the complex transcendent beings that we actually are but they're they're linguistic pointers that are, will vibe with some people and not with others yeah yeah um, that's beautiful i think that's such a that's such kind of a nice place to come back to is that all of these things are abstractions on the incredible complexity that is your body mind psyche spirit intention there's just this enormous fractal that's blooming in front of us all the time and and uh, we're trying to steer it guide it and um optimize can, it can i can so i highlight just one thing because i know we yeah. are we are getting close to to time i have a little bit more but um I think what's not being presenced here in um, what I'm talking about is we're making an assumption that the win is going to the gym, right? Or we're making the assumption that meditation feels good or fixes our life in some way. And um, what I'm really trying to help people do is not any one specific thing or only sort of get better at agency. It's really seeing that agency is a function that is uh, way less real and permanent than they think it is. And so it's built of stories. It's built of, um, I think this is important and I'm not even sure why, but I'm very assured that this is important to do, et cetera. Some of that self-love that we could come to might be to not you know, force ourselves to go to the gym because we're actually anorexic and can't realize how sick we are and we don't need to go to the gym anymore. And it's what we really need is to chill and eat donuts or whatever, right? So yeah, you have a totally different set of goals, maybe totally that, that would right. be better for you. And so my point is, is that if we don't have some of the self-awareness that I'm talking about, we can't get at that unconscious that is driving the conscious goal set that we're all trying to win at. And I think that's at the heart of what humanity's problem is, because as we identify as America or China or Russia, we aren't as wise about what's driving why we feel we have to win at this and do that and do the other. And so my only challenge, and I agree with everything you guys said, and I think it's, it can be very useful and it doesn't have to be as hard and you may not need the self-awareness that I'm talking about. My point is that without that self-awareness, the impulse and the way we're being driven is still completely invisible to us. Yeah. And that is a real problem, right? That's a real issue. What comes if we gain any kind of agency over that, and it's not, it doesn't have to be hard. I know it sounds like a hard sell, but my challenge to that is that's because you have that experience and that's what you believe about it. And so I would invite you to see that belief in yourself about that, right? So like that's the meta game of that we're doing assuredness of meaning all the time. And we need to back up to look at how we're making these assumptions before it's even wise to think, should I go to the gym? Now in your life, of course, you need to make those decisions, you need to do whatever. And so systems to accomplish things, whether it's atomic habits or getting things done or whatever it is, are awesome, right? They're super helpful as a self to do whatever. I'm trying to do a deeper thing, which is actually redefine psychology meaningfully and give us more tools to actually wake up out of the self-identification to a meaningful place of no self that then can step into authentically healthier levels of self and you know truly shift our identity. Not just become a different kind of self, but have this whole other agency of no self as a legitimate space. And I promise um, I've done that with people in, you know, minutes. I can do that with people in weeks and some people it might take a whole lot of time, but I would never frame it as hard because it doesn't have to be. It may be hard to a certain self that's showing up, but that's where I would start to peel away what their assumptions are, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, 
So that's the level that I'm trying to help on. Yeah, I have a quick yes and for that. Oh, um, awesome. Yeah, yeah. And it's one one way to to, to do this quickly is uh, to bring the tripartite model that I think goes back to Dan Thorson or Zach, Zach Stein. But um, if we think of uh, the three dimensions like power, love, and wisdom, um, it's almost as if you're operating at the the wisdom level, or some people use uh, transcendence as as that dimension as well. Um, but I, I notice that these things, at least as a model, need to be balanced with one another because some of the people I know who are the most no self oriented and uh, vibe with everything that you just said, and that's the stuff that they practice, they actually lack power and mm. uh, they, they are not in a position of influence today. And what I'd like to do is teach those people the power. And then a lot of the really powerful people that I know, you know, like really influential business people, like CEOs, executives, et cetera. Yeah. Um, they don't understand the stuff that you're talking about. They don't understand that they're actually running scripts. Like they didn't have to be a CEO. They just had some sort of internal pressure. And those people are unwittingly uh, causing negative externalities into their own lives and into the world. And so for me, at least my level of understanding right now is to to play across those dimensions. And love also fits directly into this because you can get straight to the end, I think, with the whole self-love part of it. And what happens is when you, talk to different people they'll vibe with different things so i do that's because they're identified as different selves right so so let me let me uh add one thing on that because i love what you just did Uh, um and i agree uh, with a lot of it i would say that those people that you are grouping with what i'm talking about that that has a category right we think they're there um it is very natural to not have the same power desires from that position because Mm -hmm. they are sitting in love a little bit more or whatever, all that stuff. Um, but that for the people that are um, doing that to their own detriment or not expressing and teaching as much as they could and all that, um, I would say there's a there's a, a faction of them, let's say, uh, where they're actually identifying in a way that they still are self, but they've got a story yes. about no self. And their story of that is that power is not the right thing and all this stuff. So we end up with very crunchy people walking around that are not effective. Um, I am way more powerful now uh, in in my ability to apply goals and care about things and to your point, do that with wisdom and love uh, than I've personally ever been. And I, I think I have clients that would attest to that as well because it is the merging of not just escaping self to no self. That's not the right answer. That's not complete. That would be transcending without including. Right. Mm-hmm. So the self comes online automatically. We gain some wisdom about that. We could see there might be another level of um, consciousness that we can identify with, which is maybe the all or no self or whatever that might be. And then we can apply self really well. Right. So just like somebody who's capable of going, maybe it's me, they don't lose the capability to go, no, it's fucking Tony. Right. It's this other guy too that you still have that capability. If we start to go, it's only me, that's another type of psychological problem. So we're just expanding more options and then absolutely the ability to come and know what you care about, fight for it, be effective for it and not get trapped by, Oh gosh, I really want the cotton candy, have the agency to like avoid that and go get abs. Right. Cause that's what you really want. So, um, that's my intention anyway. That's, I, and hopefully that gives it a little bit of a different, my own yes end back to yours, which I liked a lot. Yeah. 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 I, I, a line comes to mind here. Um, I think it was Eckhart Tolle who said, uh, you have two purposes. The first is to be fully present. 
and the second is to fulfill whatever purpose remains after yeah. present. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then, you know, in simple terms, it's accept and act. Mm-hmm. And I think you, there's cope on all sides, right? Like people can be acting out of a place of, of cope, a coping mechanism, or they can have equanimity as cope, right? They can just be in a state of acceptance, a state of no, no self, et cetera. And it could actually just be an unwise manifestation of non-duality. The and, meditator on fire is a good example of that, right? Who's, yeah, who's, yeah. You know, yeah. There, there's all sorts of versions of this. And so, um, and again, I always try to remind myself that like what we're doing right now is we're just, it's just words and words are really powerful and they're, they're great. And you can create these really coherent models of reality. But at the end of the day, there is a fundamental mystery behind these words. Like we're, this is the finger pointing at the moon. It's the words are the finger. And so on some level, uh, at the end of the day, when you make a decision about how to approach your life, at a given situation, or should I drop this goal or should I identify with this part of myself right now or not at some level, there's going to be a mysterious form of, of wisdom and intuition that is operating there. Um, and you can't fully script somebody from, from like start to finish. Uh, at least that's, that's what I believe. And so it's worth mentioning that because it's sometimes I, I feel like I'm creating a model that's, that sounds like coherent and complete and yeah. gives me this sense of like, Oh, we, you know, we solved everything, but there's a fundamental mystery whenever it comes to these discussions. Yeah. Uh, I, let me get, dude, I love this. Like, it's so good to meet you. Daniel is amazing. Nice to meet you uh, like Ari, thanks for like doing the surprise thing. Like this is amazing. Like so great. I hope Daniel, you and I can uh, do more together, like just talk and get to know each other. Yeah, Cause this is amazing. And so I really appreciate that. Um, if we get as weird as, as, as maybe I can put into words, right. Is that like all of this is beyond language in actuality, the, our access to that is way closer to that experience stuff without the extra attentional meaning that we're, that we're adding on top. And, you know, maybe one thing is just, if we could have the realization that there is a oneness, whatever that might be, right. Making no claims of knowledge about it. Um, and that oneness seems to be able to dissociate from itself meaningfully in infinite amounts of ways mm-hmm. and feel separate from other parts of itself. Mm-hmm. And that gives us this human dance that's incredibly beautiful. Um, but let's not take that too seriously because um, we're all just dipping back into the hole and you know popping out. And so in some way, that's another way that I sort of can feel into uh, and really have an experiential sense of like, I actually am you guys, right? The Rob that's identified over here can't have access, right? There's an inside and outside and those insides and outsides afford us lots of play, but the energy that's through it all seems to be all a part of that one. And, uh, you know, that's a really beautiful, uh, thing. And so making that like a daily part and maybe even the way we more, if we can grow that gravity of identification so that that is more the automatic thing that comes up. I still rock Rob really well, but there's some other thing where I realize um, Rob doesn't know it all. Rob's only got his perspective. He doesn't have the whole truth. And, uh, but Rob is this access to the, to the whole in a really beautiful way. And then I can kind of honor like everything that's in the field, not as me and that, but just as the isness of the all in some way. Yeah. It's like, we are all the contradictory subselves of God in a way. Uh huh. Yeah. Divinity itself. Right. Yeah. Just the whole, the whole energy of, of oneness, which is just, um, and Ari and I talked in the past about falling in love with that. Right. So that that is this, uh, in whatever way it comes up that Rob might call good or bad, there's a way to sort of strip that valence off it and 
just kind of be in love with like that, that there's a, a conscious anything happening at all is, is pretty astounding. So, yeah. This has been awesome. You guys, I'm so glad we did this. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys. Tons. Thanks Rob. Thank you guys. Okay. You guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks Daniel and Rob for coming on and dropping bombs. Okay, so like I said, please support this show on Patreon. Do it all the likeies and the reviewies and the ratings. That helps, I think. And I'm trying to grow this thing. I really am. Uh, big week last week with Alexander Bard. I had more downloads on this podcast in a week than I had had in quite some time. That's like, just so you know how many people listen to the show. That was something like 800 listens in a week, right? That's not that many. So there's at the most, there's probably 30,000 listens for this show a year. That's really not that much. So if you're listening, just know that you're part of a very small niche community that is talking about and thinking about these things. So please, if you like it, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That helps so much. I would love to have you involved. So thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.